Hello from Houston, and welcome to the Highlights Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. Our goal is to learn, lead, network, and serve. Hi, everyone. As a brief prelude, we wanted to introduce this episode as part of a collaboration with Behind the Lines, the Houston Lawyer Podcast, a podcast of the Houston Bar Association. Its April episode, Energy and the Environment, features informative segments on the February 2021 winter storm, cryptocurrency, and electric vehicles. On our highlights episode today, we focus on maritime law, which is relevant to offshore energy projects for both carbon-based and, increasingly, renewable forms of energy. We hope you enjoy our episode and check out the great coverage in Behind the Lines, the link to which is in the description. And welcome back to the Highlights Podcast. My name is Patrick, and I'm an arbitration lawyer here in Houston. Femi is indisposed with work today, so he's unable to join us, but we've got a great episode today nonetheless. Um, Today joining us, we have Utsav Mathur, who's a partner from Norton Rose Fulbright. Thank you so much for joining us, Utsav. Hi, Patrick. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. We're really excited to talk to you uh, a little bit about maritime law and your career in getting there. Um, So just as a bit of a more formal introduction, um, you are a partner at Norton Rose Fulbright in the Houston office. And this Utsif is also chairman of the Houston Maritime Arbitrators Association. And in his practice, he's a shipping, offshore energy, and global disputes lawyer, where he represents energy companies, charterers, owners, and operators in shipping disputes and a wide range of regulatory matters. He often consults companies and investors on investments in the U.S. Jones Act shipping market and advises clients on significant offshore energy projects. As a side bit, he is from a family of mariners himself and has spent time at sea even. He's also a double longhorn, having earned his BA in government and history and his JD from the University of Texas at Austin. So it's a, where are you from? Are you from Houston? Well, Patrick, uh, like so many folks who live in Houston now, I was born and raised overseas in India and my family moved to, to Sugarland uh, a couple of decades ago, about when I was halfway through high school. Uh, and so, you know, m- my home is a little bit of India, a little bit of Sugarland. And then, of course, two years into Sugarland, I went up to Austin <laughs> for undergrad and law school. So I claim Austin as a home as well. And, and now Houston, now that I'm back here, I've been working here about a decade. So a lot of different hometowns. Uh, Very cool. But I claim them all. Where do you stand as far as Sugarland and maybe the suburbs more generally as being part of the greater Houston area? Do you draw the line somewhere? Do you see Sugarland as part of Houston? Well, the line drawing in our house is done by my wife. So, <laughs> and that's a whole other conversation. Our family is growing. And so there's a very real shot. We'll be moving out to the suburbs, having spent the last you know seven, eight years in the Heights. So uh, it's all Houston as far as I'm concerned. All right. And so why did you choose Houston for your law practice? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, my family, as you mentioned at the outset, we come from a family of sailors. And so it had always been a passion of mine to end up working in that industry. Life took us a different path. We moved to the U.S. I went to law school. Uh, but then taking a couple of admiralty courses in law school, it dawned on me that the way to pursue my passion, which is shipping, but also my chosen career, which is the law, would be 
to practice in that field. And if you're going to be, you know, maritime lawyer in the Gulf Coast, you know, you might think about New Orleans, but Houston is certainly one of the premier legal markets for this area of law. Mm -hmm. Before we kind of do a deeper dive in your career in maritime law, can you tell us a bit more? You mentioned, and I, I had mentioned earlier as well, your family background being mariners or sailors. How long had they been involved in, was it merchant shipping? Yes, it was. It started with my grandfather, my, my paternal grandfather, who worked for the Indian Customs Service. Um, as I as I say that, I think he may have even worked for uh, the British government uh, prior to India gaining its independence. But after that, my dad uh, went to sea. He sailed for the Shipping Corporation of India on you know tankers and container ships and general cargo vessels uh, and i was uh, i was born right after he got promoted to captain and one of the privileges that senior officers on ships have is they get to fly their family out and then their family gets to travel with them so for the first several years of my life of course i was too young to really remember it and i spent 100 percent of my time at sea and then wow. as i got into school you know, every summer break and sometimes even for Christmas break, we'd fly out to wherever in the world his ship was and sign on to the ship and spend, you know, 10 days or 30 days or 60 days at sea sailing around with him and then fly back once vacation was over and school was ready to start up again. And so I, I feel like at some level, I, I basically grew up at sea and grew up on ships. Yeah. And, you know, some people grew up loving planes and trains. And I just grew up completely in love with with ships and the shipping industry. Yeah, I mean, that's an experience that I and I'm sure many others have have no frame of reference for. I feel like the the most at sea I've been would maybe be the, the battleship of Texas. And that's just <laughs> not. <laughs> um, well, imagine, imagine, Patrick, imagine going on a cruise with none of the stuff that makes it fun, but <laughs> loving it anyway. You know, you, you're yeah. fighting off pirates one day and. You're in, in, a, in a storm, a terrible storm the other day, and you spend a lot of the time just getting to know the crew and, and spending yeah. time with them and learning just every little thing you can about life at sea. So uh, when, when you're the captain's son, though, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a special privilege. <laughs> and so did you, I mean, as an experience growing up, did you always appreciate and enjoy it? Like something that you, you thought would be as part of your life in the future? Or was it something that you was sort of just you did it as part of your family, but that in the future you hope to do something else. No, I loved it. I mean, I loved it from the very beginning and I guess I'm getting into some personal things here, but for the longest time I was convinced that uh, just like my dad ended up being captain, I would follow his career trajectory huh. and I would, you know, one day stand as, as master of my, my own ship. Uh, of course, life took us a different direction. We ended up moving to the U.S., and when that happened, things changed. Yeah. But no, it, it, it's been a passion from the very beginning. And in fact, one of the things that my my father and I uh, ha have just really bonded over is our shared passion for the industry. Very cool. And so, coming in or going into law school, I should say, did you on that was on your radar? That was something you thought would you would like to be part of your, your practice, maritime law and shipping. Well, going into law school, it was very much on the back burner. I was privileged to have uh, mentors in undergrad who happened to be on the plaintiff side of the bar, not on the maritime personal injury side, but just, uh, uh, you know, traditional medical malpractice and other non-maritime plaintiff's lawyers. And so I went into law school thinking, uh, you know, I need to come out and I need to be a plaintiff's trial lawyer. 
And then, of course, in law school, uh, I took a couple of maritime classes, uh, one of them with with the now deceased uh, Professor Robertson, who many of your mm-hmm. uh, listeners might know. Uh, and that sort of just all of a sudden it just clicked. And I said, well, this is something I can do. And in fact, I started my career at what was then known as Fulbright and Jaworski because I wanted to work for a couple of partners here who had made their career uh, in yeah. shipping and marine and admiralty litigation. Interesting. And so taking a kind of a fundamental approach here um, in sort of a maritime admiralty law 101, can you break down for us exactly what admiralty or maritime law is exactly? Are those two the same concept or do they have different meanings? Well, historically, they, they did have slightly different meanings. I think today they're used interchangeably and you know, when they're used in, in judicial opinions, they're used interchangeably. But historically, you know, admiralty referred to a set of special admiralty courts in England and in the uh, and in the Americas, you know, courts that dealt with uh, marine contracts and ports at sea, whereas maritime law dealt with much more about, you know, resource development. And so back mm-hmm. in the old days, that was primarily fishing, freedom of navigation, but as we move deeper and deeper into the 20th century, that became, you know, a mineral rights. Uh, today, yeah. as I said, though, those terms are used interchangeably. And I guess the way to think about it is, you know, if, if something bad happens on the water or immediately adjacent to the water that deals with traditional maritime commerce, you're in the world of admiralty and maritime law. Uh, if something happens uh, offshore uh, and you're dealing with offshore oil and gas development, or even offshore wind, there's a, a reasonably good chance you're going to be in the world of maritime law, though not always. I mean, as I said earlier, adjacent state law can apply. And if you're in the deep blue sea, uh, whether it's a cruise ship or a container ship or a tanker ship, you're in our world, effectively. So that's sort of an oversimplification. Okay, I see. And so you mentioned being developing kind of this professional interest in it over the course of your law school career, since starting your your practice, since being a licensed attorney, has your practice always been able to involve maritime law and shipping? And if not, how did it come to make make up part of your practice? You know, when I was a, a very young lawyer, I worked for one of our partners who would always joke that she had a surf and turf practice because <laughs> she did some work that was onshore and then she did some work that was offshore. And so, you know, when you're starting out, uh, it's a little bit of this, and a little bit of that. Um, so I did some work that was non-pure maritime work. But when you're in Houston, so much of the energy industry relies on uh, either ocean transportation or ocean resource mm-hmm. development. And so it's, it's always been a theme from pretty much the very first case I was staffed on. And of course, now it's 100 percent of what I do. But I'd say as as early as a second or third year lawyer, uh, about 50, 60, 70 percent of my stuff started to be more and more maritime. And then it very quickly after that became all of it. Wow. And so was there at at the firm, was there this still robust maritime practice or did you have a part in sort of as part of your own business development, building that up again? Both. I mean, the, the first case that I that I worked on was a huge, huge case representing an offshore drilling company. And, uh, you know, of course, I had nothing to do with bring that case in. And that went, you know, three, two, three years. Um, it took me till I was about a 30 year lawyer until that case was was settled. Uh, and, and so 
uh, and then of course I mentioned earlier I, I decided to come to this firm because there were still a couple of Admiralty partners mm -hmm. here uh, when I signed on as a, as a summer associate. But very soon after I arrived, uh, the the folks that I wanted to mentor me got opportunities uh, elsewhere. They went in house to go become clients, and that was great for them. Uh, but from that point forward. There's always, you know, maritime aspects to otherwise non-maritime cases. And I'd always raise yeah. my hand and say, I want to be the person that handles that issue. And so that happened a little bit. And then very soon thereafter, when uh, pure maritime and admiralty cases came our way, uh, I raised my hand and I handled them. And, you know, we handled them reasonably well. Clients were happy. And so it just grew and grew and grew. Uh, it, it is fair to say, though, that the practice uh was not at its prime when i started but we've seen a real resurgence the last few years. yeah also as as a young lawyer myself i'm curious about so you mentioned raising your hand and saying that you wanted to handle these issues and a lot of issues and i, I do see that how in houston i'm sure many of them do involve these maritime or maritime adjacent issues um so when you would raise your hand i'm curious whether it was something where you felt like you had already established this maybe expertise and you could address the issue or you were confident in yourself enough to develop that expertise as sort of your own development to help address the issue? Well, the combination of all of it, right? Uh, mm -hmm. the, the first few years, there were, I mean, there was one of the senior lawyers left, as I said, to, to go in-house. Another one remained. And so there was always a senior person uh, from whom I could learn. But I think part of the privilege of having a passion whether it's for a particular industry or for a particular area of the law, your appetite to learn, your willingness to learn is just voracious. So waking up every morning and having to read the latest Law 360 article or, or get you know a Westlaw alert about royalty litigation in mm -hmm. Kansas, that's probably somebody else's passion. It's not mine. That would be work <laughs> for me. And, and I would really struggle to find the motivation to do that. But waking up, pretty much every morning, if not every morning, at least, you know, three, four days a week and looking at the Westlaw uh, uh, alerts that I've got set up to see, okay, what admiralty cases have been published. And I remember even as a, uh, maybe I was three or four weeks into the job, it was a Friday evening and I was sitting in the office uh, seven or eight at night, you know, reading. And one of the partners uh, who's a notorious hard worker walked by and he was sort of surprised to see you know, first year lawyer on a Friday night sitting here and I was reading a nutshell and it was the Admiralty nutshell. Right. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, going back and looking at my notes from you know, the Admiralty classes we took in law school, waking up every day and reading Westlaw cases, you know, uh, scouring the Internet to identify the key media sources to receive relevant industry information. You know, you, you do that enough and, and you'll find it in three, four, five, six years with the supervision of talented senior lawyers you can get up to speed uh, reasonably quickly. And then, of course, it's experience. It's case after case after yeah. case. And and sometimes it's not cases. Sometimes it's, you know, advising clients on a whole host of issues. Uh, you'll find that your depth of knowledge grows. But all of it, Patrick, and I know I'm talking long here, but I think all of it comes oh, from no. being passionate about the area of law you have chosen. Yeah. You know, which the more I've thought about it, it's a rare gift because not not every lawyer gets to say, I am truly passionate about this area of law or the industry that I serve. So finding that is critical. Yeah. The, this career, um, our profession, you know, it, it'll chew you up unless you can find uh, a significant amount of joy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, 
find that jo- joy however you can. You know, maybe it's not even about uh, uh, the industry or, or the substantive law. Maybe maybe you just love trial procedure, and so you know that that's yeah. that's what gets it for you. Maybe you love oral advocacy, and and that's kind of the the dessert at the end of a day of brief writing, right? So whatever it is that sort of gets you passionate and gets you excited, you've got to find that to keep your motor going. Yeah. Well, so let's look a little more more concretely at what these maritime and shipping disputes look like. Can you give us maybe an overview of what, maybe from a specific case that you've had or just generally um, what the, what it looks like, who are the relevant players in, in a given dispute? Yeah, uh, that's hard to summarize, but the way to think about it is there's a lot of different interests at play on any given you know voyage. If a ship is moving crude oil from you know, uh, Texas to, to Asia, you've got, you know, a company that owns the vessel. You've got the vessel itself, which is a unique uh, maritime law uh, uh, facet whereby the vessel itself is personified and given its own, you know, legal uh, uh, existence. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the vessel can commit a wrong. The vessel itself can be arrested separate and apart from the fact that it's an asset owned by a company. So you've got the owner You've got the vessel itself. You've got companies that'll rent or charter the vessel. You've got cargo on board. So you've got folks who own the cargo. You've got uh, insurers. You've got banks that are financing uh, the vessel itself. And there can be a whole host of disputes involving one or more of any of those players. So just, you know, as an example, a very simple case might be moving crude oil from U.S. to Asia the crude oil left being of a certain specification, it arrived being of a different specification. So you might have a claim that the cargo has been contaminated. Uh, You might have another scenario where you've got a container ship uh, that is sailing out of the Houston ship channel and that ship collides with a vessel that's coming into the Houston ship channel. And so you've got a tort uh, case there. You might have a case where you've got an LNG carrier uh, moving into a berth and something goes wrong and the ship elides uh, with with that birth, and now you've got uh, a tort case there. You know, you could have, uh, a, God forbid, a horrific uh, explosion where you might have uh, uh, folks that are injured or who've unfortunately passed mm-hmm. away, and so you can have personal injury. Uh, you, you can have just a purely commercial dispute where you know uh, one company has chartered uh, a vessel, and there is some delay, substantial period of delay, and how the cost for those delay delays get allocated between the owner of the vessel and the charter of the vessel, now that can be a, a fight as well. So, you know, and that's just scratching the surface. There's dozens and dozens of other types of disputes. Yeah. And so independent of what these disputes look like, what about as far as the cities and the industries that that you've seen the maritime space involve? Are there any that are pretty prevalent here? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, the world of shipping, you know, the story of shipping is really the story of everything, or, or maybe more mm-hmm. accurately, it is a story of 90% of everything, right? Because every single thing that is a commodity that exists, you know, 90% of it moves by ship. So whether you're talking about, you know, hydrocarbons, that's a tanker ship of some type, you might be talking about uh, raw minerals like iron ore, uh, or even grain that can be a, a bulk carrier ship, which carries dry bulk cargo, or you could be talking about laptops, computers, you know, footwear, yeah. uh, retail goods that move on container ships. So, 
you know, 90% of pretty much everything that's bought and sold that's a physical object moves uh, via vessel. But in terms of, you know, so, so every industry, you know, every industry leverages, relies on, utilizes, is a customer of the shipping industry. But in terms of, you know, cities or, or parts of the world, historically, there was a big focus around Europe. Most of the world's ship owners were in Europe. Most of the world's financial institutions who invested in, the, in this industry were in Europe. Uh, most of the, uh, the insurance companies were there. And London was, you know, sort of the global hub. And of course, New York is a, is a second hub, second only to London. Yeah. But in increasing years, uh, you know, we've seen a shift towards Asia, Patrick. Uh, hmm. You know, China in particular is yeah. now the dominant player when it comes to the container market. They're also a huge player when it comes to the energy, uh, oil and gas market, because they're importing so much energy. So Houston has a major role to play, mainly because we sit at the nexus of hydrocarbons and shipping. But yeah. from a global perspective, you know, it used to be London, it used to be New York, but increasingly it's becoming China and not even like Hong Kong and Singapore, but sort of mainland China. Well, so I also understand that, and I'm sure this is increasing maybe in your practice, but you, you've had some work as well in the offshore energy market in the sense of, I think you've, you've done some work in offshore wind farms. Yeah, so that's kind of a huge uh, new and emerging area. Uh, the concepts of law are not entirely dissimilar to offshore oil and gas. I mean, effectively, you are uh, you know, generating energy by placing uh, offshore installations that are permanently affixed to the outer continental shelf. And then you've got large, complex vessels involved in you know, building, maintaining those structures. And you've got smaller vessels involved in moving equipment or moving personnel back and forth to those vessels. So there are some similarities to offshore oil and gas, but this is just sort of a new burgeoning uh, industry. Offshore wind in the U.S., particularly off the East Coast, uh, is huge. And our, our firm you know, is lucky to represent a lot of folks in that space. And, you know, inevitably, uh, there's going to be uh, there are marine issues that arise, mm -hmm. uh, whether it, it is understanding the effect that maritime law will have on your indemnities or how the adjacent state law may throw those indemnities off, whether it's understanding how under what's called you know U.S. cabotage law, whether uh, certain methodologies for carrying out the construction are compliant or not compliant with U.S. law. So there's a whole host of different ways in which just like with the oil and gas industry, the offshore wind industry intersects with maritime. And so these projects, I imagine, they very possibly intersect with transactional work that goes into developing them. But do you have a role maybe as someone who's an expert in in this area in, in advising on any transactions like this? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the industry is still in its infancy, right? So you mm -hmm. really haven't gotten in any meaningful way to the dispute phase uh, of the industry. It, everything is sort of front-end contracting work, yeah. front-end strategy work. And so all of, the, all of the work right now has been in a non-disputes context. But as, as the years go by and we get three, four, five, six, seven years in, that's when you'll start to see mm -hmm. disputes emerging. They might be, you know, they might start out with personal injury litigation, which then leads to indemnity disputes further up from between general contractors and subcontractors. 
uh, and then you get bigger and bigger construction disputes. We haven't gone to that stage yet. And hopefully as the safety record of all offshore work improves, you know, we won't have too much of it, but inevitably it'll come. Yeah. And one, one dispute or potential dispute from this incident that I think most people are aware of now and not related to offshore wind farms or energy projects, but the, the obstruction of the Suez Canal that happened, I want to say end of March. What, what were your thoughts on that, uh, that obstruction and how have you seen or how do you think it will uh, affect global trade or energy markets, if at all? Well, you know, uh, that's probably one of the most high profile marine incidents in terms of making global news, uh, you know, in the last uh, in the last few years. Um, my, my first thought was, you know, it's remarkable how safe the Suez Canal transit really is, because there's, you know, about 50 ships transiting the canal e- either way on any given day. Mm-hmm. You know, a ton of those ships, particularly over the last three, four years, have been, you know, very large container vessels, or ultra large container vessels, the kind of ship uh, uh, similar in size to the Ever Given that got stuck. The, the amount of clearance those ships have to their port and starboard, to their left and right, as they're transiting the canal, and certainly even the, the, the clearance below the hull, the underkeel clearances, is really minimal. And yet, you know, day after day for years now, there's not been a high profile incident like this one. So my first thought yeah. was, this is a generally safe proposition. This is clearly uh, a calamity, but generally it's a safe huh. proposition. My, my second thought was, you know, part of the reason why we might, we might, I hope we don't, but we might end up seeing more incidents like this is the size of ships, particularly container ships, has grown dramatically. Uh, it's been growing really since the turn of the century, but but we've gone from ships that would carry two and three thousand containers, you know, in the late nineties, to now ships that are carrying twenty one and twenty two and twenty three thousand containers. Wow! Right, that is an order of magnitude higher in a short amount of time. And, and the reason that matters, Patrick, is think about a ship with that many containers moving through a very, very tiny waterway, even a gentle breeze or let's say a yeah. medium gust is going to act on that ship as if the entire ship is a sail and push her in one direction or the other. And if you add that with, you know, an unfortunate navigational decision where you've got such a tiny margin of error or, you know, a- a- any slight underperformance by the steering and, and propulsion equipment of the vessel, you know, all of that presents uh, a real risk. So those are some of my initial thoughts. In terms of the overall impact to, you know, the global economy, I think something like 10 or 12 or 13% of global trade moves through the Suez Canal. Uh, a vast oh. majority of it goes from Asia to Europe and the other way around. Some of it does come to the U.S. But uh, you've got to think about global trade as this nonstop conveyor belt right? Uh, and, and each ship is a component of that conveyor belt, but it is a non-stop, steadily moving, harmonized, synchronized chain. Uh, even though it's many ships across waterway, they're all mm-hmm. in this steady loop. And if there's a blockage at one end, I mean, imagine if you know the conveyor belt just stops at one end, uh, either the entire belt stops or there's sort of a pileup in one place. And so 
you're seeing all kinds of impacts where, you know, ships were pulled up, backed up, stuck in one place. All those ships then move in a group and they show up at a port. The port can't handle it. Yeah. The other impact you're seeing is, you know, if containers are going to go from Asia to Europe, well, the empty ones need to go from Europe back to Asia. That's being stuck. And now you've got a shortage of containers. And you add on top of that, that because of the pandemic, uh, inventories in the West, in Asia and in the U.S. were already at an all time low. And there was this huge demand for more inventory. And that's the moment that this happens. It's a substantial impact. It's such an interconnected you know, supply chain system that disruptions at one end will have effects at all parts of the chain, and they won't just be resolved in six days or eight days or 10 days. It'll be weeks and, and months until it sort of rebalances. And so we've all probably seen random headlines here and there of like, oh, I think one that I've seen is like, there's a boba shortage that's going to be happening. Um, I don't know if that was across the country or maybe just isolated to the West Coast, but like, do you think some of, so that there will be random shortages or increases in price of any given product? You think that's happening or on the horizon? Yes. I mean, I, I think it's probably already happened a little bit now. Uh, but as, as we emerge from COVID and as consumer demand grows rapidly, Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to see, you know, whether you call it inflation or just, just, uh, you know, it, 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 some of it will be just inflation across the board, but some of it may be spikes in certain commodities yeah. and certain products, uh, you know, and, and in many cases it is truly a supply chain or shipping issue. And so we talk a little bit about the large increase in the sizes of ships, which I, I was unaware of, and that, that is, you, you describe it as an order of magnitude larger. Are there any parallels between this event or the challenges that the Suez Canal faces with the potential challenges faced by the Houston ship channel. I assume we have maybe ships of the same size coming through here. If not, I mean, maybe smaller. Yeah, smaller. Those are primarily on the uh, China to Asia to Europe Mm -hmm. routes because the infrastructure in uh, the large ports of Asia and Europe can handle ships of that size. In the U.S., for the most part, we cannot handle ships. So, so we might get a 10, 11, 12,000 ton, uh, excuse me, 10, 11, 12,000 TEU size ships, so ships that carry that many containers. Mm-hmm. But we're not going to get a 21, 22, at least not in okay. the foreseeable future. Nonetheless, I mean, I'll just give you an example. I mean, in 2019 and maybe early parts of 2020, there was a big issue involving um, two-way traffic on the Houston Ship Channel because as uh, as you know, the Panama Canal was expanded a few years ago. And so while we still don't get the ultra large ships, we still we now get larger container ships than we did a few years ago. And those larger container ships uh, basically prevent two way traffic up and down the Houston ship channel. Huh. So whereas you could have two tanker ships of a certain size passing when mm-hmm. one of these you know medium large container ships is going through the waterway, you can't do it. And as the as frequency of those ships increase, you can imagine the kind of uh, congestion that causes on our waterway, which then means yeah. that tanker trade is delayed. And for every hour the tankers are sitting there waiting, I mean, that's you know thousands and thousands of dollars for the energy companies up and down the, the Houston ship channel. So that's kind of a, a big issue. But in terms of, you know, could something like, uh, the ever given grounding happen in in the Houston Ship Channel, 
The answer is absolutely yes. I mean, and in fact, it, it's happened many times where either because of grounding or because of a collision between two vessels or even a non-vessel event like the, the ITC fire that happened, the Houston Ship Channel uh, can be closed and has been closed and sometimes closed for two, three, four, five, six days. And a closure like that will right away cost you, you know, billion, billion and a half or more dollars. And then you get into the weeds of, okay, well, if you've got, you know, 40, 50 ships sitting outside the Port of Houston waiting, backed up because one ship ran aground, do you really have a claim against that one ship? And in most cases, the answer is you don't because of the economic loss rule, right? Unless you've got, if you've got a purely economic injury without any accompanying physical harm, it's hard to make a tort claim against the ship that caused the blockage. So it could it happen? Yes. Has it happened? Yes. It just hasn't caught, you know, global attention. Yeah. Like the, uh, the ever given incident did. That one I definitely heard of first, I think in meme format where I saw the <laughs> meme of the, the ever given being used on Instagram. But, uh, I quickly learned that it was an actual thing that had happened. Uh, and so I'm, I'm curious if it would have gotten as much attention. I don't know what came first, the national attention or the meme um, in that case. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I guess the world I live in, uh, uh, you know, I think a couple hours after it happened, there were uh, alerts yeah. and figures that went out. I think CNBC was reporting it. I don't know. Uh, I think it happened on a weekend and they were reporting it by the Sunday or by the Monday. So uh, hmm. it, it, it was in the mainstream news fairly quickly, uh, but I'm sure that it caught popular imagination uh, in large part because of, you know, the memes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so I, I want to thank you for your time. And as we wrap up this conversation, I do want to grab onto something you mentioned earlier or alluded to earlier is, a run-in with pirates, I think. And so I wanted to see if you uh, would be willing to expand on that that story for us. That sounds really interesting. Well, um, yeah, it was Captain Jack Sparrow and I. We, uh, <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's it's interesting. I, I'll I'll share the story with you briefly. Uh, this was probably 1998 or 99, uh, the summer of one of those two years. And uh, I was at sea with my family. My dad was captain, as I mentioned earlier. We were on a container ship and we were uh, approaching the port of Colombo. And the port of Colombo uh, in Sri Lanka, uh, the water outside that port is fairly deep. And so when ships uh, arrive at that port and they are waiting to go in, they don't always drop anchor. And that port is also, at least it was then, I think is still today, notorious for pirates, but not not your AK-47, you know, wielding uh, crew, uh, kidnapping pirates, more like uh, carjackers on, on the high seas where they come on board. They want to you know, crack open the first 10, 15 containers. And at that time, the, the latest technology was, you know, Walkman or a VCR or a television. Grab that. Grab the best electronics. Maybe not televisions because they were huge back in the day, but grab whatever they can, head back into their boat and get away. So I was on the bridge. Uh, it was maybe 8.30 at night, and the third officer was on watch. And all of a sudden, he noticed something on the radar, like a little flicker, right right dead center, dead in front of the ship, a little flicker. That happens a couple of times, and I'm asking him about you know, what it is. And he's, you know, he's thinking, well, maybe it's an echo, it's a ghost, but, but turns out it's something real. So he radios the guy that's standing watch at the front of the ship, and all he hears is 
you know, heavy, heavy panting. And the guy says, they've got hooks. They're coming on board. And apparently these guys, the, the, the pirates had come up in a tiny boat right in front of the ship, thrown a couple of hooks on board and were climbing up. And, and so, you know, they sound the alarm. The crew sounds the alarm. My dad's job is to go down to the base of the accommodation, which is where the people live, and armed with nothing but high-powered fire hoses, march to the front and deter the pirates. And my wow. job was to stand on the bridge and to blow the horn, the ship's horn, to let the pirates know, hey, guys, we know you're there. And <laughs> if we know you're there, it means the Sri Lankan Navy's on its way. <laughs> and so my other job was to take this massive, massive, huge uh, uh, flashlight, basically, on the bridge wing of the ship, pointed to the front of the pirates and, you know, flash the light on and off to let them know, hey, we know you're there. And so if I'd known anything about my future love of Texas, I, I would have flashed <laughs> the light right at the front and I would have said something like, the eyes of Texas are upon you. <laughs> I didn't. But, you know, poor, poor guys, they, they hacked open several containers and every container they opened up had heavy equipment uh, like a John wow. Deere tra a tractor or something like that <laughs> in it. So poor guys didn't get anything. But uh, that's, you know, that's how I played a very teeny tiny role in saving a ship from a pirate attack. <laughs> well, that's a very serious encounter nonetheless. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, not now it's just a story. But at the time, it was an incredibly terrifying uh, encounter. And more so for, you know, my dad and, and the crew that had to march uh, up to the front, not knowing what they'd encounter. Yeah, wow, um, that's that's powerful, and I'm sure in in the future movie that will be made about your amazing career as a maritime lawyer, so that'll be that'll be the opening scene, I think. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, I, I guess the point there is, how can you not be a maritime lawyer? If that's you know, if that's the, the childhood you have. It's, yeah, quite an origin story. Um, yeah, well, so. The last, and I'm conscious of your time here, but the last question I have for you is any parting advice you have for either law students or young lawyers who are either a interested in making maritime law part of their practice or are maybe for one reason or another being forced to wrestle with it as, as a part of a case or a matter that's happening. Do you have any advice for, for those people? Yeah. Uh, well, let me broaden it out and make it more general advice for law students and young lawyers, because the two best bits of advice I ever got were, you know, number one, invest in your own career. Um, and number number two, you know, find find your passion or find your enthusiasm mm -hmm. uh, and, and find joy in what you're doing. And on that first one, I, I loved the sense of power and ownership it gave me. It, it's my career. I'm not going to wait for someone to hand me success. I'm not going to wait for the firm to give me opportunity. I'm not going to wait for a mentor to come approach me and tell me how I should do things. You know, I get to choose my mentor. I, I get to choose the people I invite in shaping my professional life. I get to choose the firm I'm going to be with. I get to choose the people I work with. I get to choose my clients, you know, uh, and that sense of empowerment was, was great. Uh, and it also sort of, it also taught me that I've got to go out and do it, supported by great mentors and friends. I can't wait for others to give it to me. So going back to uh, doing everything I can to learn substantive law on my own time, right? Uh, or, or joining organizations that uh, introduced me to folks in this field. 
I felt mm-hmm. a sense of ownership. And so I want to pass that on to, to your listeners. You know, it's, it's, it's your career, take ownership of it. And then the second one, the point about, about passion, uh, I don't want to dissuade people from where they are, but but if you just absolutely dislike what you're doing or dislike the area of law you're focused on, take ownership of your career and do something else and find something that you're going to be passionate about. And I guess the last thing to be slightly responsive to your question, um, <laughs> you know, get on Westlaw uh, and, and look up, you know, uh, Schoenbaum's if, if you need a great uh, treatise on, you know, Maritime 101. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's my best advice. Perfect. Well, thank you for your time. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a question in the spirit of Femi and one of his favorite questions to ask people um, at the end of an episode off the topic of law. But as someone who has spent time in Sugarland and is currently living in the Heights, but Houston throughout, um, I would say, do you have a favorite spot to eat here in here in town? Oh, yes. I mean, I, I, I... You know, I, I love, I love South Asian food. So any spot in Hillcroft, well, after my parents cooking, any spot in Hillcroft is a good <laughs> spot for me. So yeah, it, it's, it's going to have to be the Hillcroft Indian restaurants. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. Good tip. Well, thank you so much for your time. Utsa, and take care. Thank Patrick, it's a pleasure you. being on and thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the High Lives Podcast, brought to you by the Houston Young Lawyers Association. To reach us, please email us at highlightspodcast at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you if you have any comments or questions about this episode or thoughts on a future one. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a great rest of your day.